you grab a seat. Good evening. If you have a Bible tonight, grab it and open it up to two different places. Open it to Ephesians chapter 6. Put your little ribbon there. And then open it up to Joshua chapter 1. So Ephesians chapter 6 is where we'll ultimately end up. Joshua chapter 1 is where we are tonight. Now, if you don't know the Bible that well, let me give you a little outline of what's happened up to the point of Joshua. And if you're kind of really new to the Bible, you don't know where Joshua is, it's way in the front, okay? Way, 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 way in the front. Uh, up to the point in the, book, uh, in the books of the Bible, here's basically what's happened. Israel, the nation of Israel, has been formed from the man Abraham, and it is a uh, collection of Abraham's grandchildren, if you will, that becomes the nation of Israel. And they are held captive in Egypt for hundreds of years as slaves. Finally, they are delivered by a man named Moses. And God, through Moses, delivers Israel and uh, leads them to receive the law of God called the Ten Commandments. And all of this to fulfill a promise he made to Abraham that his children, his nation, would dwell in a, in a land that God had given them called the promised land. It's one of the most famous biblical phrases, the promised land. Well, the promised land is nothing more than the land promised to Abraham that his children would live in. But Israel becomes slaves of Egypt, and they don't look like they're going anywhere soon. And God delivers them through a series of miracles called the Ten Plagues. And Moses leads them across the desert toward the promised land. But because Moses sins, he is forbidden to enter the promised land. And that responsibility falls on a guy named Joshua. And so uh, there are so many tie-ins to who Jesus is in Joshua. It is inexplicable that anyone raised in the Christian church doesn't hear about Joshua all the time. Like, if you don't know who Joshua is, you're missing so much of who Jesus is, right? Let me just give you one example. Moses and the law are in command until you get to the promised land, but only Joshua takes you into the promised land. Moses can't cross the river. There's one. You go, what? That's my point. How much a part of the story of Jesus is Joshua? Here's your hint. They have the same name. Jesus' name is Joshua. You say, well, why didn't he name Joshua in the Bible? Dif because the Old Testament's written in Hebrew and the New Testament's written in Greek. They have the exact same name, Yeshua, the Lord saves. We are meant to see in Joshua a prefigurement of Christ. And here's the thing, when Joshua takes over, now imagine this, like we have presidents for at most eight years. And so if you get a president that's in office for eight years, that's, a that's like a, you know, a long time. And when you get a new president, it's kind of really weird because you're just so used to there being somebody in there for that long. Moses had been in charge of the people of Israel for 40 years, all right? And they had seen him perform miracle after miracle after miracle. When they needed water, God used Moses to bring water in the desert. When they needed food, God used Moses to bring bread from heaven called manna. When they got tired of manna and wanted meat, God used Moses to bring quail to come fly in and die. And they just went, ah, oh, meat, right? Uh, if you want to eat one of the best, if you want to read one of the most, you know, proof that God has a sense of humor, 
uh, they're getting this miracle bread from heaven that falls every morning. Like they're starving in the desert and all of a sudden they wake up in the morning, there's frosted flakes on the ground. And they start complaining. They're like, we're tired of these frosted flakes. This is terrible. So God says, what do you want? They said, meat. He goes, fine, I'll bring you quail. But I'm gonna bring you so much quail and that's all you're gonna have to eat. You will eat it until it comes out of your noses. That's funny. Like, that's funny. Just, I don't, I mean, I don't wanna eat quail until it comes out of my nose, but good for them that they did. But here's the thing. So finally it becomes Joshua's time to take over you got to see what that's like. 40 years of a guy who's in charge that you know God is with him. You've seen miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. You know God is with Moses. And all of a sudden, Moses dies. And now this dude Joshua's in charge. This is a scary thing. And it's not just scary for the people of Israel. It's scary for Joshua. How am I going to be able to take this over? How am I going to be able to do this? And so in Joshua, you have a repetition of a phrase over and over that's a famous biblical phrase, but is almost unique to Joshua. It's used in Joshua over and over and over and over. And the phrase is, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. That's what God tells Joshua over and over and over. So if you got your Bible, look at Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And look at these promises that God tells Joshua. I'm with you. Be strong and courageous. I am with you. That's what he's saying over and 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 over again. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, he says this. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What's God telling Moses? I mean, Joshua. He's telling Joshua, trust me, be strong, be courageous. Number one, do not abandon what I have commanded you. Follow what I have commanded you to do exactly. Don't turn from it an inch to the right or an inch to the left. Be careful and do exactly what I say. And I am with you. I am with you. Be strong and courageous. Now, if you know the story, here's what happens. They finally go into the promised land. And one of the reasons that Joshua is picked to be the leader It's because when they get to the promised land originally, Moses sends spies to go into the promised land and kind of check it out. Can we take the land? You know, know, we're not really good at fighting. We were slaves. If it was like a a brick making off, we could totally win. But we're slaves and we're not sure we can fight and win. Like we'd have no idea. So they go into the land and and they come back and and there's 12 spies and 10 of them go, no way. These, these people, they're, they're giants. They're all, every single one of them is the size of Shaquille O'Neal. They're going to kill us. 
like they will all kill us. We are grasshoppers in their sight, is what they say. They, they're going to slaughter us. And only two guys go, we can do it. We can totally do it. Not because we can do it, but because the Lord is with us. Joshua and a guy named Caleb. So only Joshua and Caleb are allowed to enter into the promised land. So the reason that Joshua is picked to be the leader is because he's one of the only guys that said, hey, we can do this. We can totally do this because the Lord is with us. So sure enough, they pass into the promised land and the very first place they come to is a walled city called Jericho. Now you've probably heard the word, the name Jericho before and you may even have heard the story in Sunday school. What you don't get is that when it comes to ancient warfare, the hardest thing to do is to take a walled city, right? How many of you saw uh, Lord of the Rings? How many of you saw the two towers? You remember when they go to that big, huge walled city and they get all these big things and they push in the, the monsters that look like prom dates and they come in, they're like, you know, they're jumping in and the, it's just hard to do and everybody just is slaughtered. As a matter of fact, in the ancient world, in, the, in this time, in the ancient world, it was a known rule of battle. Okay? Now, follow me here. It was a known rule of battle. If an army laid siege to the walled city, right? So the army comes up, and they laid siege to the walled city, and they go, we're going to fight you. The walled city had a few days. It depends on where you were, three days, seven days, it depends, to surrender. And if they surrendered, only the king and the top military officers got put to death. Everybody else got to live. Everybody. It was a rule. But if you made that army try to take the city where they had to actually go to the walled city and get it, everybody in the city died. Everybody. No quarter. Because it was so costly to try to take the city. So difficult. So if you ever read history and you say they slaughtered everyone in the city and go, that's horrible. It is horrible, but that's how they did it. Everybody knew it. If you make make us fight, we're going to kill everybody. Open the gates, let us come in. Everybody lives except for the king and his number one and his advisors. So Israel, which has never been in a war ever really because they were slaves, they walked around the desert for a while. They got into a few skirmishes here and there, but they come to a walled city, Jericho, and they have no experience in this. They don't, I mean, how are we going to take, we, are you joking? This would be like the worst thing ever. You're like, okay, so we can take the land. Let's get the land. Woo, first city. Awesome. There's no way we can do this. Let's go back to Egypt. We'll make bricks. It'll be awesome. Because this cannot be done. We cannot do this. So the Lord comes to Joshua and goes, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take everybody. I want you to get all the tribes of Israel. And I want you just to walk around the city every day for a week. That is the dumbest thing yeah, I've ever heard. Like, even Israel knows this is a bad battle plan. So you just want us to walk around the city for every day for a week. Yes. Let's just go back to Egypt and make bricks, man, because this is awful. Like, what are they going to do? Go, oh, they're stupid. Let's go get them. And then, like, they'll come out and we'll get them. That's, what, that's the plan. We'll look totally stupid, and then they'll come out and get us. Oh, it's a great plan, God. Okay, so that's what they do. They walk around the city, and then on the last day, the seventh day, God says, okay, now I want you to walk around the city seven times. So they do. They walk around the city seven times. And when they get done, God goes, but this time, I want you to blow horns and yell Like, do you really think Joshua's going, could you resurrect Moses and let him do this? Because 
I am not jiving with this job. All right, everybody, get a horn, get a kazoo. We're going to, everybody, practice your embouchure, and we're going to blow hard. It's a music joke for some people. I'm multi-talented. I've got a wide range of jokes I can make. Okay, so in Joshua chapter 6 is when they come to Jericho, and they get to Jericho, and they do, what they, they do what the Lord's told them to do. They've come to the walled city. They have no hope of taking the walled city. They can't possibly take the walled city. They've looked like idiots for seven days walking around the city. And then God finally says, now walk around and blow the horns and scream. And you know what happens. In chapter 6, verse 16, it says this, On the seventh day they rose early, at the dawn of the day, and they marched around the city the same manner seven times. But in verse 20 it says this, So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. They didn't do anything. They just yelled and blew trumpets and the walls fell and they basically took Jericho without a fight. I mean, they just, they just stormed them and came in there and got them. And the lesson for Israel is exactly the same lesson that Paul is going to be trying to teach us in Ephesians, which is this. The battle is the Lord's. And against odds and against factions and against enemies that seem insurmountable, the battle is the Lord's. And to forget that is to come to awesome trouble. Now, if you look in Ephesians chapter 6, we're really getting to the end of Ephesians here. And Paul is really beginning his ending comments, if you will. He's wrapping it up. All right. We've seen Paul talk about the gospel in the early chapters. We've seen Paul talk about how Jew and Gentile are one person in Christ. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. They are one person in Christ. If you ever hear people saying, no, the gospel's for Gentiles now because the Jews rejected it. Wrong. If you hear somebody say, no, the gospel is for Jews first and then Gentiles. Wrong. The gospel's for everybody. Same amount. That's Ephesians. But then in the middle, you finally get past this idea. And then it says, hey, okay, now, now this is how you live because of the gospel. We watched Paul lay out all these kind of social relationships, parents to children, slaves to masters, wives to husbands, husbands to wives, all this kind of stuff. But he's really now kind of given this general statement of how one is to live in the world. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, he says this. And I want you to hear that commandment from Joshua echoed in this verse. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Now, if you were to read this this. This uh, verse in Greek, it, would lit- it, it more literally says, strengthen yourself with the Lord's power. That's more literally what it says. Strengthen yourself with the Lord's power. Now, this word might, the word might here, the word might or power, depending upon what translation of the, of, of the Bible you're using, is not the normal word for power 
or strength or might in the Bible, in the New Testament. In the New Testament, when the authors are trying to get across the idea of power or strength or, uh, or something like that, the word is usually the Greek word dunamis, dunamis. It's where we get our word dynamite, power, dunamis. This is not that word. This word is ishkhus, ishkhus. And, and the idea that you're going to find this is you have a play on words going on here because number one, uh, the word be strong does come from the word dynamis. So the normal word for strong, for power, those type of things is the word dynamis and be strong is, the, is made from that word. It, it, the idea is gather your power, get your power from the Lord's ishkus. Right? So it's saying you will get your strength, you will get your power from his might. And we'll get to what that means in just a second. But you've got to see them. In, in, there's this transfer idea. There's this idea of you are now strong because of the Lord. You are now strong because of God. Uh, when I was in college, I had just the most amazing assortment of jobs in college. I could tell you jobs I did in college while I was there, and you would go, is this like two truths and a lie? Because there's no way that one's true. Because just some of the stuff I did was crazy. But one of them was I worked at a cement plant, and I ran jackhammer all day. It was awful. But it paid good, so it was awesome. But it was awful. And the guy who was my partner, because you had to get a partner, like everybody had a partner because people were dying all the time at the plant. All right, we got another death. Like, and you had to have somebody there to tell people you were dead. Um, I need a new partner. Greg's dead. You know, throw him in cement. No one will know. Like it was, it was just a bad thing. So the first day at work, I get a partner and uh, it's this just enormous dude who's like, hey. And I was like, oh, he's going to kill me and put me in cement. Great, great. They gave me the serial killer. Like, well, this guy and I become really, really good friends, and he is an athlete at a Division II school and uh, goes on. He plays in the NFL for 10 years, probably going to go to the Hall of Fame, wide receiver, best athlete I've ever met in my whole life. Uh, and we would play basketball all the time, um, never, never against each other because it was a joke. But I would, I, would, I would go play basketball with him and his friends and stuff, and he was, we were always on the same team. And uh, believe it or not, I used to be really good at basketball before I was, became stupid. But I used to be good at basketball. And, but I was nothing compared to this guy. Like, I wasn't even in the same ballpark as this guy. So I knew when I had the ball that all I had to do was get across half court and throw the ball toward the basket. And Rod would catch it and dunk it somehow. Like, I don't know exactly how, but he would. So I'd just go, I'd get across half court and go, Wah! And then he'd just come in, boom, and dunk it. And I'd be like, how you like us now, suckers? What? You know, like I would just be like, bring it. And we would just mow people down. We'd be like, two on two, let's go, we'll take on anybody. No one on earth could beat us. All right? And they couldn't. Why? Because I'm awesome? Yes. But more so because he was. All right? So my team is strengthened by his power. 
That's the idea. Not my power. It's an external power, which I tie myself to. When they would pick teams, I would just go stand by them. They go, oh, we haven't picked teams yet. I go, I don't care. I'm on his team. That's just how it is. You're not getting me off his team. Well, you can't be on his team. Well, then I'm going to have to just be on his team anyway. Like it'll be six on four because that's, I'm going to get the ball every time and throw it to him because you can't win. That's the idea. Be strengthened by his power. The word strength here is really the word for do mighty deeds. Do mighty deeds. Be strong in the strength, the mighty deeds. The word is kratos. Kratos, strength. Yes, you God of war nerds. Kratos, mighty deeds, strength, power. This is the idea. Be strengthened and do mighty things. Be strong to do mighty things. And then by his might, ischus. And the word is really closer to our word for like his ability or his force. It means power at work. It doesn't just mean a stagnant idea of power. It means power at work. Do you remember when you were like sixth grade and you took physical science and you learned the difference between uh, potential energy and kinetic energy? Do you remember that at all? You're like, I'm saying that now, shut up, right? (laughs) One is the energy that something could have or is in there, but it's not working. And the other is, this is what it's doing. This is the, that's the idea. This power, this idea of ishkus is the idea of power at work, power doing something. And so the idea that Paul's trying to say here is gather your strength from the mighty deeds God is doing. The stuff he is doing. The power that he is showing. But power for what? Okay, I get be strengthened I get power, I get those ideas, but for what? Why? What's, what's the point? Well, verse 11 and 12 give us an idea. Verse 11 and 12 in chapter 6 say this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If you've been at Crossroad for a while, I believe it was last February or February of this year, that I did a talk about what does Paul mean when he uses those phrases. If you get the Crossroad podcast and you miss this one, go to the website, go to the podcast, Go back a few way, uh, months in, in, into the last early winter, probably it was, and find a talk called Rulers and Authorities and listen to it. Paul means the demonic realm, the realm of Satan, the realm of demons. He's saying this is where we fight against. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against evil spirits, basically, is the idea. Now, for a Western culture, that's real hard to get demons, Satan, those kind of things have taken up the residency of of movies and the bazaar. Most of what we actually think about Satan and about demons comes from Paradise Lost, not from the Bible, or Bugs Bunny, right? Or South Park. Uh, 
You know, C.S. Lewis's famous quote about the devil is as dead right as it ever gets. We either give him too much credit or not enough. We either see the devil behind every rock or we see him as just a cardboard cutout. The truth about the devil is the devil is real. His demons are real. They're active. They're present. They seek to kill and destroy. They seek to distract you. They seek to destroy you. But how they do it is very different than most of us even imagine. Most of us think of the activity of the devil and of demons being things like possession, you know, making you vomit green pea soup or whatever. And the truth is, it is our sinful actions that are the devil's kingdom. Our own sinful actions are the devil's kingdom. The kingdom of sin is the devil's kingdom. The kingdom of unrighteousness is the, is, the, is the devil's kingdom. Being possessed and, you know, walking up on ceilings and having fangs and going, okay. We're going to have that for a ringtone for you later if you, if you want that. Hang on, it's my mom. Come on. How funny would that be? Oh, never mind. Little, little TMI right there. All right. The rule of the devil is our own sinfulness. We tend to think of the rule of the devil as being some dark, mystical realm and everything's gray and gritty and unevenly bearded and just, you know, swarthy, I like to say, swarthy. But notice what Paul says about the battle that we do with the enemy. Because I think it'll be in a realm that you're really not ever thinking about as being a realm of the battle against the evil one. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, this is what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 10, 3. He says this. For, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to, divine, to destroy strongholds. Now, what you'll find is people make this up and they'll be walking around the city and all of a sudden they'll go, I feel a stronghold. Let's get it, all right? And it's a tree or something like the dark side of the forest. Vader lives in the bottom, you know, chop his head off. But watch what Paul's really talking about here. What is he talking about strongholds? Listen to what he says. Because he's just dead clear about it. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. How many of you have ever thought of arguments or lofty opinions being the realm and the stronghold of the enemy? 
Paul at different places talks about different doctrines, doctrines that are opposed to the gospel. You know what he calls them? The doctrines of demons. We live in a culture that's trying to cram down our throats that there's no such thing as absolute truth. There's no such thing as a right interpretation of a text. You can't possibly know it, and that has to be the truth. No, that's just the devil's arguments being swallowed and assimilated by Christians who do not realize that the battle for the mind is the battleground of the war with the devil. When Paul would talk about going to war with the devil, more often than not, he talks about doctrines and opinions and lofty thoughts and the wisdom of this world and arguments of this wisdom. The spirit of the age, he calls it. The way people think, the way they act. And I want you to pay special attention to the very last phrase here because Paul's rejoinder is that we are to try to take every thought captive for Christ, let alone every word we speak. This is the battleground. This is where we're called to discipline ourselves and disciple one another. You'll see James, you'll see uh, other apostles of the New Testament saying things like, don't give the devil a foothold. And what does he mean? He's talking about a conflict between believers. Why? Because all it takes is one bad thought. And the devil begins to pick, pick, pick. Now, if, if I know your minds, as I know mine, I know it's impossible there's too many thoughts, too fast. Too many things that reveal the true nature of my heart and how it's bent toward evil all the time. But what is good in me, I see, of the gospel, set up against that old person that I was, set up against me, calling me to Jesus, calling me to God, and so what you see is Paul set up the idea of the gospel against the idea of the thoughts of the flesh, the thoughts of the sinful nature, the thoughts, if you will, of the devil. Look at 1 Corinthians, if you want to, chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And notice the difference between how he tries to talk to people. See, our notion of trying to... to uh, evangelize or to interact with the culture is, well, make it make sense, uh, dumb it down, make it palatable. But that's, that's the exact wrong thing to do. That is the exact opposite of what Paul says to do. And how so many churches, not only in Knoxville, but across America are getting away with this is inexplicable other than they're filled with churches of people who are swallowing the devil's lies and believing the spirit of the age rather than the word of God. Because listen to this. Listen to exactly what Paul says. 
In chapter, in first Corinthians chapter two, verses one through five, he says this. And I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, see, here's the deal. This doesn't make a lot of sense to us because the public square, have you ever heard that phrase? The public square is dead in our day. The public square has been moved onto the internet where people are anonymous and they're really, really bold when they're anonymous. But you could talk to them face to face and they'd be like, I didn't say that, somebody must have hacked my account. Yeah, okay, hacked your account when it was you and, you know, who, you who's going, <laughs> what's this? Okay. The public square's dead, but in Paul's day, what would happen was people would get up in the public square and they would start giving speeches, trying to prove a specific point. And there were professional orators or, uh, called rhetoricians. They would just get up and they would speech, they would give speeches, and their whole job, they'd talk for hours, was to try to convince you to their philosophy. And there was people that were so good at it, people would travel for miles to hear people that were really good at giving arguments and debating. And what Paul's saying is, I didn't do that. That's how everybody did it back then. If you wanted to get a new philosophy across, you went to the public square and you got up and you presented a really good argument. As a matter of fact, you can see Paul go to one of the most famous public squares, a place called Mars Hill in Athens, and get up and give a very short speech and then leave. He doesn't talk for hours. He does like three paragraphs and he leaves. Because watch what he says. I did not use lofty speech. I did not use lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What's his message? Jesus and him crucified. That's it. That's the message. That's all I'm going to do. In Romans chapter 1, when Paul says, what is the power dunamis of God? The literal power of God. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. The gospel is, is the power. The gospel is the mighty deed. The gospel is the force we are to link our lives to that becomes in us the power to live in opposition to the kingdom of the devil. And anything else is fool's gold. Cubic zirconium. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You say, power of God, so he did miracles, sometimes. But the actual power of God that the Holy Spirit gives to believers, the, the, the actual way that we see the Spirit of God at work most in believers is what we're going to talk about next week, actually. 
But this week, what I want you to see when you go back to Ephesians is this idea that this power, this power gives us the weapons, if you will, against the power of the evil one. Well, what are they? Well, if you keep reading, it says this in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You will not be able to stand firm in your own power. You will not be able to withstand the evil age that we live in with your own wisdom, your own power, your own rationality, your own capacity. Only the Lord's power will give you the strength to stand. In one of the most famous passages in the New Testament, coming up the next week, you're going to read about what is the armor of God. And you know them, you've probably read them before, things like the sword of the spirit, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. What we tend to do is try to make those things into some kind of, well, I guess I better go find the sword of the spirit. A quest. Like I, not getting that the power is truth. The power is righteousness. The power is salvation. The, that is the power. Those things are the power. What makes us stand against the evil age is not some sort of magic. It's righteousness. It's a heart converted. It's a spirit converted. I don't know how well you know the story of Joshua and, and, and Jericho, but do you know what happens after that story? What happens after that story is that God had given Israel some very specific commands about how they were to enter Jericho, and one guy disobeyed. One dude. He disobeys. Now, they've just taken the walled city of Jericho by the power of the Lord. And so they're going along, and they come to the next little, little place they're supposed to attack. And this is like the littlest village. Like, I mean, it's nothing. You got Jericho. It's like, you know, you just took New York City, and now you come to Bucksnort. Like, not even comparing. You're like, oh, this will take 10 minutes. And they go to war with this place. That it's called AI. It's literally the letters AI. And they get annihilated. I mean, they get wiped out. And Joshua comes before the Lord and goes, how is it even possible we took the walled city of Jericho and these 10 dudes from AI just whipped us? And you know what the difference was? The Lord wasn't with them. The Lord wasn't with them. Jesus says this exact thing during the Last Supper. He says this, and it's not hyperbole, and it's not a figure of speech. It is a description of reality. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who remains in me will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. How much? Nothing. Joshua, the people of Israel, had to walk around that city. They had to blow their horns. They had to yell, even when it seemed crazy. 
Because that's what God told them to do. Do what I tell you to do and watch what I do. The Lord has told you, remain in me. Seek me. Get in my word. Pray. And watch what I do. But apart from me, you can do nothing. What are the powers of God? What has he called us to? We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the joy you've set before us in your son. That we would know victory over our enemy. And while it's true that we will face many persecutions and we will face many trials uh, at the hands of the devil and, and uh, his kingdom, ultimately, Father, the war is won. You cannot be defeated. The, the Bible pl- presents a very clear idea that with Christ's death and resurrection, the war is over. And what we are in now is the last battles. Father, I pray that you will set our minds on the power of, of your spirit in us that call us to truth and righteousness and holiness to a a life pursuing you from the heart. God, I pray that as we run into the sins that remain in us, that we would not be afraid and hide, that we would not in terror flee, but remembering your promise, we would just confess and speak with you as to a friend, acknowledge our sin, but seek your power to overcome it. Let us see our minds as battlegrounds. What do we put in our minds? What do we watch? What do we listen to? Who do we hang out with? These things are the battlegrounds. They aren't tangents. They aren't parentheses in our walk with you. Above all, Father, I pray you would make us worshipers so that in all things we would be an honor to your son's name. And so it is in his name we pray, the name of Jesus Christ, the Savior King. Amen.